How y'all doing this morning? Good. If you have your copy of Scripture, go and turn to Exodus chapter 7 and pick up where we left off. And today we're beginning the journey through the 10 plagues. And uh, obviously there's 10 of them. That's why we call them the 10 plagues. And we are going to um, look at each one of them and see kind of what's behind it. What's the culture of those plagues? Why those things of all the things that God could have done? And why 10? Um, If God was interested in rescuing the Israelites, why not rescue them immediately? Why wait for 10 plagues? Why prolong the inevitable? And there's reasons for all of that, and that's what we want to jump into and pay attention to. We also want to pay attention to some of the wording, uh, some of the growth, spiritual growth that Moses and Aaron are going through, the people are going through, um, and the conflict between Moses and Pharaoh. It's very easy to read the book of Exodus, and especially the Passover, and think this is God versus Pharaoh, but it's not. It never is. It's never, ever God versus anybody. There's no one that's God's equal. Um, It's never God versus Satan. Uh, Matter of fact, when you come to the end of the book of Revelation and God is bringing everything to a close and there is the fight, the beast has been released from the pit and there is the final conflict, God doesn't show up for it. God sends Michael the archangel and it says that he defeats him with one word. It's never a competition. It's never God against anything because there's nothing equal to God. And that's what you see here. Moses and Pharaoh are the two equals that are looking at each other. God's above both of them. And he orchestrates what he wants to orchestrate. And that's one thing that you have to see as you go through this. The central character here is God and no one else. Everyone else is a sub-character in this whole story. So with that being said, let's jump into the passage that we have here. I want to begin in verse um, 14, kind of picking up with where we left off. Again, we're coming into the plagues. And we're going to go through this slowly to pay attention to um, each one of the plagues. Um, There is some repetition, so I'm not saying we're going to do just one every week, but um, we're going to take our time and look at the nuances of each one and kind of what it's related to in Egyptian culture. So let's look at verse 14 as we look today at the first plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. So I want you to picture what God is saying there. If you remember last week, it was when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh. Uh, Aaron threw down the staff of God. It became a snake. Then Moses' Egyptian, or not Moses, Pharaoh's Egyptian magicians threw theirs down, two of them, and they fell down and became snakes. And they were like, ha-ha, we doubled your miracle. But then there was the miracle of miracles, which is Aaron's rod comes up and eats the other two, swallows them whole, swallows them up. And so again, there's this picture of sovereignty. I want you to, don't miss this, that the staff that was found out in the middle of the wilderness, some piece of wood, is what God used to consume the pictures of authority in Egypt, which is the staff that if you've ever seen those pictures, it has a snake's head at the top of it. Pharaoh wears a headdress that has a cobra on it as well. And the snake was like this this picture of strength and this picture of authority. And it's the little wooden staff that they found out in the wilderness brought in by the shepherd of slaves that throws it on the ground and it consumes the other two. Again, this is a a foreshadowing. It's a little taste of what is to come. 
And so that's what we see here in this picture as well. Uh, as he's going out there, fresh on his mind is what happened there in the, the courtroom or wherever, the throne room where Pharaoh sits. And now all of a sudden he's going out to the Nile. Now we don't know exactly why he's going out there. More than likely he's going out for some kind of religious ritual. Why? Because God says to him, hey, when he goes out there, go meet him. Okay, so in other words, it must have been some routine, something that he did routinely going out to the Nile. And of course, the Nile was a god in Egypt, and so that makes sense that they had ceremonies that were involved with that. And so he was probably going out there, much like his daughter was whenever she went out and actually found Moses. Now, I want you to see all these stories coming together. Moses was as good as dead, sitting in a little ark on the Nile when the daughter of the Pharaoh then comes down, finds him. Of course, we know that saves his life. Now, all of a sudden, grown-up Moses, many years later, 80 years later, is standing on the banks of that same Nile. And now, it is Pharaoh himself who is walking out there. Fresh on his mind is what has happened in his throne room, right, with the snakes. And now, here is Moses with that same stick standing there. And it's like, Hello, remember me? And Pharaoh's like, oh, this guy. And so that's the picture that you have there. It's like, oh, wow, I've got to run into him again. And you're going to see this pattern develop as you go through these ten plagues. Now, one thing that we understand here is God is demonstrating his dominance over all of the Egyptian gods. That's what we're going to see as we go through each one of these plagues. But there were specific gods over the Nile. One of them's name was Osiris, one of them's name was Nu, and probably the most famous one is Hopi, okay, Hopi, H-A-P-I, kind of like happy, but it's Hopi. Now, Hopi was a very interesting god. He was a hermaphrodite. He had the face of a man with a beard, he had the chest of a woman, and he had a pregnant belly, and he had um, both necessary means for procreation. Okay, just put it that way. All right, say it as cleanly as possible. And so that, that's what he was. And so the thought was he could have babies himself. He didn't need anybody else. And they believed that the Nile was created when he gave birth to one of his babies and water came gushing out. And that created the Nile. And they believe that Happy or Hoppy is the one who is, is the, responsible for the floods that come in and pushes the Nile further into the inlands where it can water the crops and all those things. So Hoppy was the main god of the Nile that was probably the most famous. Now, more than likely, this is why uh, Pharaoh is going out there. We know that from uh, different documents that we have from that day and time that there were prayers that they would pray to Hoppy. Uh, there were songs that they would sing to Hoppy, like, I'm Hoppy, I'm Hoppy. I'm, I'm just kidding. That's an old song. But anyway, or if you're a Hoppy and you know it, no, I'm just kidding. We won't go there anymore. So anyway, they would sing, they would pray these prayers, they would do these ceremonies, all in the worship of this God of the Nile. Okay? Now, whenever 
he comes out here and he's performing this. The one thing that he sees is the one who represents the God of the Israelites. This is this shepherd that's been out in the wilderness. This one who couldn't make it as a son of the Pharaoh, an adopted son into Pharaoh's family. This is the guy who got rejected. This is the guy who's on the outside. This is the guy who's been wandering around in the wilderness. The one who represents the slaves. And yet he's become already a thorn in the side of Pharaoh. And what's happening here in this first plague is God is beginning his assault against the gods of Egypt by attacking the source of life itself. So again, remember, Hopi is a picture of fertility. He, he doesn't even need anybody else to procreate. Okay? He just has it himself. He is the giver of life. The Nile was seen in Egypt as the source of life itself because not only was it their water source, it was also the source for their crops. And, and, and even um, you know, later on, my pillow, you know, that all, the Giza dream sheets that y'all have, that comes from right there near the Nile. So, I mean, right there, you know how important this place is. And look how it continues in verse 16. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood." So again, I want you to see the picture. Moses is standing there. Pharaoh's coming out. Probably he's walking out, and all of a sudden he sees him, and he's like, oh, no, and starts walking a little slower. And then as soon as he gets close enough, this is where Moses begins to address him and says, listen, I mean, you already saw God's authority over you. God said to let the people go so that they may worship him in the wilderness. And if you don't, I'm going to strike the Nile with this same rod, this same stick, and it's going to turn into blood. So, verse 18. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will... What's that word say? The Nile will stink. I want you to underline that. If you've got one of those Bibles you like to underline or highlight in. If not, just kind of tuck it in the back of your mind. That it says the Nile is going to stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses... Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch it out, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. So we call these the ten plagues that we're starting with, right? But actually, I want you to understand or see that not all of them are actually called plagues. This first one is not called a plague. Plague is not a bad word that you could use for that. But I just want you to know some of them it's a striking of. Now, plague is, is also a picture of that. The word plague means a blow or a wound. So a plague could be something where someone takes a blow or you deliver a blow. That's kind of like a plague. Or a wound could be a plague. Uh, so striking and plague are kind of synonymous. They have a lot of overlap. So sometimes you'll hear them called plagues. Sometimes you will hear them saying, I will strike Egypt. Now, I want you to get the picture there. What we're seeing there is a fight that is developing. And it says that God is the one who's throwing the punches. If you don't release my people, I will strike Egypt 
by doing this. And many times, symbolically, that's exactly what happens. You take the staff and you strike the Nile. One time he takes the staff and he strikes the ground. And that's what begins the plague that follows that. So again, there's the picture that you see developing. Moses versus Pharaoh, and God is fighting on behalf of Moses. Now, we often see the imagery in the text of God stretching out his arm. Do you remember in Exodus chapter 6, it says, I will rescue you with what? An outstretched arm. So the picture there is not like I'm just reaching out. The picture is a fist. The picture is a blow that's being delivered. I will deliver you with an outstretched arm. You can picture a fighter that's delivering a, a, just a deadly cut across the chin with his arm stretched all the way out. He puts his whole force behind it. That's the picture that we have of God coming against Egypt here. Now, again, verse 20 kind of gives us a little more detail. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonder that I will do in it. So each sign is really a wonder, a sign. It's something that is symbolic. It's something that should be marveled at. It speaks to the intensity of God's power. It speaks to his sovereignty over Pharaoh and over Egypt. And if you pay attention to how this whole story develops, you're going to see that as the plagues develop from 1 all the way to 10, they increase in severity. So, so you see this first one, and, and, and the Nile turns to blood, and the fish die. Again, that's hitting kind of the staple of what the people eat. They would eat the fish from the Nile, and it's also their water source. And it only lasted for seven days. So for seven days, they were struggling to figure out where in the world are we going to get some water from, and they had to figure out something else to eat. But you're not seeing mass casualties from this, okay? You're not seeing death except the death of the fish. So this is a huge inconvenience, Beyond that, it is a disruption for their whole economy. That, that's really what happens the first one. And it's like God keeps saying, it. The, the ten plagues are actually a great picture of God's mercy. He's saying to them, listen, please repent. Recognize who I am. And if you will do that, I can relent. But nope, they won't because their heart has been hardened. Okay? And so the picture there is each one gets a little more severe until you get to the end. And, of course, there is death involved in that one. So you have inconvenience. The next few that will develop will be like disease and destruction. And then the final one will be death. That's the progression that you're going to see as we go through each one of these. Now, again, there's a pattern here, and I don't know if there's anything significant to it. But it is interesting that it follows in every one of the ten. So what you find is right here, he says, go meet Pharaoh in the morning. Okay? You're going to see in the very next one, he says, go into his court. And then the next one, he says, go outside of his court. That's one, two, and three. Four, five, and six follows the same exact one. Go meet him in the morning. Go into the court. Meet him outside the court. What's interesting is 7, 8, and 9 follow the same exact one. Go in the morning, go in the court, meet him outside the court. So there's like this direct confrontation outside, direct confrontation inside, and then what happens on the third one is a confrontation. There's not a confrontation. In other words, Pharaoh's not out there. 
and that's when they strike the ground, or one time he picks the dust up and throws it into the ground, up into the air. And so we see that pattern. The only one that doesn't follow that is the last one, which the last one stands all by itself. Again, that becomes the heart of the Passover story. So we have these repetition of three, three, and three, and a progression of things getting worse, worse, and worse as you go through each one of them. Now, uh, and back in chapter 8, verse 20, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Uh, the fifth plague in his, happens in his court in chapter 9, verse 1. Go into Pharaoh. Um, Exodus chapter 9, verse 8, the sixth plague, the boils. Take a handful of soot. So again, that's the pattern that we see as we move through these ten plagues. There uh, is symbolic nature to each one of these and how each one of these unfolds. There is both a confrontation of Pharaoh as the authority of Egypt and as the ultimate authority of Egypt, but also it's a confrontation of the gods that are worshipped within Egypt as well. Now, there's a point that the scripture gives to us to all of these plagues. Uh, we can go back to verse 17 of chapter 7. It says, Thus says the Lord, By this... You shall know that I am the Lord. Okay? By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, I hate to sound like a broken record, but we're going to keep repeating this over and over again because I think that it bears to be repeated. And that is, this is all about knowing who God is. It's God revealing himself. Again, God is the main character of this entire story. And so every time you see this, God is doing these things in an effort so that he may be known, that the Egyptians may know who he is, that Pharaoh may know who he is, and that the Israelites would know who he is. You remember this whole thing starts with Moses saying, who are you? I mean, if I go to these people and they say, who sent you? Who should I tell them? Who are you, God? And then whenever Moses goes to Pharaoh the first time and says, God, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, says, let his people go. And he says, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? I don't know of him, and I'm not going to let the people go. I don't care what he says. So again, who is the Lord? Here is the Lord. I am the Lord. I'm going to do these things so that they may know that I am the Lord. Now, the point of the plagues and the whole book, again, is to reinforce the central relentless message that happens over and over and over again. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. There is no other God. Now, there is danger when you become too familiar with God. It's very easy to approach this story as just some historical account of something that happened in the past. It's very easy to approach this story and see it as some kind of moral lesson. In other words, good versus evil. And this is what the good person is. And this is the evil person. And, and the good triumphs over evil. It's very easy to approach it and, and to think about it that way. And, and it's kind of like you, you watch it almost, you read it almost like a movie. And you walk away from a movie going, now wasn't that a great movie? That was awesome. But you walk away from it unchanged from watching the movie, just entertained by it. And there is a temptation that the more we become familiar with this story, the more we see it as something that happened a long time ago. But ultimately, this is something that continues to happen. I'm going to show you by the time we get to the end of this. Um, if you believe that this story is true, 
and I do, I believe the story is true because it's presented to us as true in the scripture. Jesus refers to it as a very true story. Moses believes these things very much happened. Even Pharaoh and the magicians believed these things really happened as you see these things involved in the story. They believed that this was the finger of God, the hand of God. They couldn't explain it any other way. So if you believe that these things are true, the question becomes, how will I know this God? How will I understand him? How will I relate to him? How will I respond to him? See, our journey through these plagues and the story of Passover is going to be one that should cause deep reflection from us. Each one of us should stare deep into our own souls and see how have we responded to God. You know, God has revealed himself around us in so many different ways. I mean, there are the common graces that we all experience, you know, the sunrise, sunset, um, the, the sound of the waves at the beach, being up in the mountains and seeing just the grandeur of the height of the mountains and the clouds rolling past. There's a lot of common graces that we share. Guilt and shame God uses to draw us to himself. Whenever we do something wrong and we've offended people or we've lost relationships or we've hurt people, then there's that guilt and shame that we feel. Why do we feel that? Because we, we know there's something wrong. Where did that come from? God put that in us to drive us to him. Those are, that's something else that God uses to introduce himself to us. Um, new life. I mean, how, how many of you have ever been there at the birth of a baby and you're just like, this is the most amazing thing? How does this happen? I mean, it's, it's, when I went to science class and they talked about how difficult it is actually to become pregnant. I don't know if y'all have ever like seen everything that has to be perfectly aligned for someone to get pregnant. You walk away from it going, how does anyone ever get pregnant? And yet, this is something that we celebrate, that life comes forward. Death is another time when we're very reflective of life and what it means for us and, and what is it calling us to and what's the significance of it. I've preached many funerals in my day and I'm telling you, uh, this sounds weird, but I would much rather do a, a funeral than a wedding. And I, people are like, well, that sounds very dark. But the, the point is people will listen at a funeral, and they're not really listening at a wedding a lot of times. You know what I mean, they're there, you're kind of a pawn in the whole game, and you know, people are just waiting for to get to the reception. But when, when you're there at the funeral, and there is that body, that lifeless body that's up at the front, and, and the people there knew that person when that person was alive and active and moving and, and talking and, and relating, and, and now it's, it's empty and devoid of life. Many times people are reflecting, going, what is life about? And, and when, when is that time going to come for me? And, and, and how is that going to look? And what is my life about? And how am I going? How am I using my life? People in those moments are very reflective. Now, sadly, as soon as they get outside and get back to life, they can tend to forget those moments. But in that moment, you have their undivided attention because it becomes so real. And I believe God uses life he uses death, he uses parents, he uses our kids, he uses circumstances in our life to grab our attention and to introduce to us who he is. God is always speaking around us. The question is this, are we listening? Are we hearing what he has to say to us? Are we listening to his voice whenever it's approaching us in those common graces? 
Are we listening to his voice when we experience the difficulty in life or those crisis situations that draw us closer to him? Are we listening in our depravity when we feel the guilt and the shame and God saying, is that what you want your life to be? Come to me. Let me give you meaning and purpose and identity in who you are. Are you listening to God as he speaks to you in the circumstances of your life? You know, in our... uh, Sunday night Bible study, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, uh, and, and there's an interesting passage there in Hebrews chapter 3. I just want to read some of the verses to you. I want you to hear this. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have Come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, listen to the word that he quotes. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now the reason I find that fascinating is this. This is the other part of the Passover. The writer of Hebrews is writing about the people who were rescued from Egypt. And they became just like the Egyptians they were rescued from. Why? They became hard of hearing. And why I say hard of hearing, I mean their hardened heart kept them from hearing God. And all they could hear was their own passions, their own pursuits, and their depravity gets the best of them. And he's, he's relating this story to them saying, man, look at something that started out so good and ended so bad. They fell in the wilderness just like the Egyptians fell. That reminds us that just because God is love doesn't mean everybody gets a pass. We will all be called to account for our lives, what we did with it, what we did with the spiritual gifts that we've been given, what we did with the time, with the talents, with the family, with the resources that we've been given. Every one of us is going to have to give an account to God. And it's kind of the thing with when we continue and we follow after him and we listen and he draws us in, we can be used greatly for his glory. But when we fall in the wilderness, when we fall in our disbelief because of our hardened heart, guess what? We still live for his glory. It's just in a very different way. See, the one thing I want you to see about the Passover is both Pharaoh and Moses live for the glory of God. One of them lives for him in his grace. The other one lives for him in his wrath. Now, it doesn't mean... That as you follow God, you can't have doubts and disbeliefs at times. Moses did, didn't he? Moses disbelieved that God was going to come through, that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. Uh, Moses struggled with believing in God, but yet Moses makes it through this whole process. He grows closer to God as the story unfolds. Pharaoh, though, in his obstinance and his arrogance, he stands against God. Okay, so... That's the picture that you have there. 
There are several secondary characters in this story, but I think the two main ones are Moses and Pharaoh. Moses had doubts, but he listened. Pharaoh had doubts, and he refused to listen. Both of them came to know God, but they came to know God in radically different ways. Do you see that? Every single person in here will come to know God. It's not a choice that you're going to make. You will come to know God. The only thing that you really have any control over is how you're going to come to know Him. You can know Him by listening and learning and being drawn to Him, or you will know Him in His wrath. Which one are you? Is God slowly getting through to you, even in your questions, even in your doubts, because you're listening? Or are you like Pharaoh, always dodging, always ignoring, always explaining away the things that are happening around you? The worst five words that could ever come out of your mouth or anyone's mouth is this. I'm fine. I got this. How many times have you heard somebody say that? And usually what happens is they're saying that in a crisis moment. When you've gone to them and you're like, you need help. You're struggling. You're not yourself. I'm fine. I've got this. And that is an arrogance that comes out that says, I'm in control of my own destiny. I don't need any help with that. I'm fine. And the truth is we're not fine. And we don't have this. And that's why God allows these circumstances in our life to draw us to him to say, I can have you. I can be the one who sets the course for your destiny. I can be the one who gives you your value. I can give you your meaning. I can give you the direction in life and show you what you were created to do. This first plague was clearly meant to get Pharaoh's attention, to understand the fight that he was in. It was his gods against Moses' God. His gods, little g, plural, against Moses' God, singular, big G. So you can see that this is developing in a way that pits those two against each other. Now, this first plague only lasts for about seven days. In those seven days, we see that the Egyptians were forced to try and find water however they could. It even tells us in the passage that they dug wells with their own hands. Why? Don't miss this because this is the important part of the first plague. The reason you see them digging with their own hands trying to find water is because their gods failed them. Their gods couldn't come through. Their gods could not provide life. Their gods could not provide food. Their gods could not provide water. They were left to go and dig in the ground with their own hands to just find a sip of water to quench their thirst. Why? Because their gods could not deliver. Let me tell you something. Your idols will always let you down. Your idols will always let you down. I don't care what it is. And here, I'm not an idolater. Yes, you are. We all are. We all have that opportunity. We've all walked through it. If you're an Alabama fan, you're an idolater, okay? Or if you're an Auburn fan, you're an idolater. I mean, the thing is, idols look very different in our culture today than, than they used to. Sometimes they do look like 
a, a basketball team or a football team. Um, sometimes they are our kids or our family. Sometimes it's our job. Sometimes it's our hobbies. Sometimes it's our looks. Whatever it may be, we have these idols, and they're the things that we chase after to find our identity and our meaning and our pleasure and our purpose. And what happens is every single one fails you. Again, this is probably an overused illustration, but it's such a good one. And I go back to Tom Brady when he was interviewed. I can't remember after which Super Bowl he won. And after winning all the Super Bowls, the person said, you know, what does it feel like? And he says, it just feels like there's something else out there. It feels like this isn't it. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I thought it would feel differently getting to this point, but it didn't satisfy me the way that I thought it would. I mean, here's a guy who's made millions and millions and millions of dollars, and he's the upper echelon, if not the very top capstone of professional football, and yet he said, everything I've dedicated my life to hasn't fulfilled me in the way that I thought it would. Think about that for a moment. That's true about so many of our pursuits in this life. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, you get married with stars in your eyes thinking, this is it. This is what's going to make me happy. And you figure it out it's going to, it makes you miserable. That's what getting married does. And it is. It's difficult. I say that somewhat jokingly, but somewhat, somewhat true. I mean, you can have the greatest marriage where you really get along, but there's still going to be those moments where you are tested and tried. And you are the tester and the trier in that sometimes. I mean, we play both roles in that, don't we? Um, kids, you think, oh my gosh, if I could just have kids, it would be. And then you have kids, and you're like, why in the world did I wish this on myself? And there's those times when you're like really gracious, and the times when they're a little bitty, and then they start talking, and you're like, why did I ever want them to teach them words and teach them to talk? And, and you're like, oh, look at them walking, and you're like, why did I ever teach them to walk? Because that becomes like the, the stuff that becomes the, the difficulty in that relationship, and the angst that begins to develop is the words and the actions and the attitudes. And so the things that we desire sometimes don't feed us the way that we think that they should. Sometimes we find ourselves leaving idols that we once worshipped, but they didn't deliver, and we are out digging, looking for that next thing to quench our thirst. And we are looking anywhere we possibly can to find it. Their gods have disappointed them. So you can see that this is just the beginning. Nothing even major here beyond the miracle itself. It's this huge inconvenience. It's an embarrassment, obviously, for the Egyptian people, for Pharaoh himself. But there's no death or destruction besides the fish that died in it. It's kind of like if you remember the hurricanes around here. When Hurricane Sally came through here. You remember how inconvenienced you were? You remember when your power went out? Did y'all have, anybody have power go out? And you lost all the food in your refrigerator and your freezer because you didn't have that. Some of y'all had those built-in generators, all you rich people. And y'all hold it over our heads. But we, uh, most of us didn't have that, right? And so we were scrounging, trying to figure out. We're trying to eat everything in the freezer that first day. You're just gorging yourself, hoping it lasts for seven days or whatever it is. But that's the same kind of picture that we have here in this first one. Great inconvenience, messes up life, and it really shows how fragile the system really is. I mean, a hurricane comes through like that, and all of a sudden, you can't go to work. You can't buy gas. You can't go anywhere. You can't get money. And it's like, how did I just take all these things for granted each and every day? But we did, didn't we? And guess what? As soon as everything started operating again, we started just taking it for granted again. And so that's the same picture that we have right here. In this plague, we see a picture of God's mercy and grace. His graciousness is the fact that 
he holds his wrath back as long as he possibly can. He holds back the full measure of his wrath until they have said no to every other introduction of himself to them. Another interesting word here is that word stench that I draw, drew your attention to. Now, you remember back in chapter 5 when Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, let the people go. And he's like, I don't know this God you're talking about. And if you got time to go worship in the wilderness, then you got too much time on your hands. Therefore, I'm going to make you go pick up your own straw. I'm not delivering anymore. And so they went back and, and they said, the people got to pick up their own straw and still make the same amount of bricks. And do you remember what they said? They said in verse 21, listen to what the people, the Israelites said to Moses. They said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us, what? Stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And it's like God in his patience and mercy said, no, no. You're not the one that's going to stink to Pharaoh. It's going to be his own gods that are going to stink to him. Oh, there's going to be a stink. And it's going to stink really bad all through Egypt. But it's not going to be you. It's going to be his gods. I'm going to show him who his gods really are or who I really am. And so isn't it amazing how God turns things? Right when we think it's going in this one direction, God can turn the whole thing around and something we didn't even see happening comes forward. And that's exactly what happens when the Nile turns to blood, the fish die, and there is a stench, a stink that goes throughout the land. Now let's look at the last few verses of our text today. Uh, look at verse 19 and we'll continue on through that. I want you to pay attention to how many times the word all is used here. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and, and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals and their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout. That's where you answer it. All, say it again. Try it again. All right, now that's your prompt from now on. All the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And the water in the Nile turned to blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank. So that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout do you see how many times it's used there? It's a picture of this complete miracle. This wasn't a partial miracle. This wasn't God doing a little bit of damage. Every bit of water turned into blood. This was an all-inclusive miracle. It even says there, oddly enough, vessels of wood and stone. Now, you may look at that and go, wow, that means every little puddle of water. Now, there's a very interesting nuance to this. Not, not, Bible scholars aren't completely sure that this is what it means. It's hard to understand what he means by stone and wood because the word vessel there is actually not in the actual text. That's added to try and keep people from getting confused, but the word vessel is not in the original text. It just says that the blood was found in the wood and on the stone. So some people believe that it was so pervasive that it was even like if you walked through the wilderness, there was blood, like wherever dew was. In other words, the dew was on the trees or the dew was on the stone, there was blood there. But there's one perspective that I think fits the best, and that is this. Throughout Egypt, all of their gods were made of wood or made of stone. 
And whenever you would walk through there, one of the things that we know about the Egyptians, whenever they, they worshipped their gods, they would take water from the Nile and wash the stone statues and the wood statues. And so some scholars believe that that's what it's talking about. As They carried out these things that they had to do each and every day. They kept going through their procedures, but yet they're grabbing death and wiping death all over their statues because they have no other options. There's not any water to carry out these ceremonies with. And so again, that would be a picture of God's sovereignty over all of the gods of Egypt. Now there's something interesting that happens in verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So there's something fascinating. These first few uh, miracles that you see, the first few plagues, you see the Egyptian magicians producing the same thing. And you might sit there and go, whoa, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. Is it, though? I mean, is it? Um, they're adding to the problem. You would say, oh, it's amazing if they could reverse it. Like, if they had the power to go, oh, no, and they push the blood back and it becomes water again, that's pretty impressive. But it's almost like they have like a jar of water at home and they're running out and they're like, oh, look, look what we did. We, we turned it to blood. And they're like, how do you know that that just didn't turn to blood because everything else is turned to blood? Oh, no, we did this one. We don't know exactly what happened, where they got this water from that they turned to blood. But number one, it's this small amount. And number two, they're only adding to the problem. They're not solving anything. Do you ever notice that whenever they do their secret arts that their secret arts are only imitations of what Moses has already done? Did you ever notice they never do anything original? They only repeat what they've seen already done. And you know what? That's just like Satan. Satan is an imitator. He is, the scripture calls him the accuser of the brethren, and he is the one who imitates God. He pretends to be God himself. I want you to understand this powerful picture of what we have here with these magicians mimicking what Moses did on a smaller scale. Listen, number one, they don't have any power to solve anything. Number two, they don't have any power to save anyone. All they have the power to do is to mimic something that looks like a miracle. The same thing is true of sin in our life. The thing is, we pursue sin as if somehow it's going to nurture us. We pursue sin if somehow miraculously it's going to give us our identity. It's going to give us what we long for. And you know what it does? It never saves and it never solves. Sin creates more problems. Sin creates more addictions. Sin creates more devastation. It never solves the problem. It never saves us from our issues. It drives us deeper into its slavery. That's what sin does. And verse 24 is, is actually very striking. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. What a picture of desperation. I mean, here they are, left to scourge for life because their gods were proven to be impotent. This is what happens with idols. Idols let you down. 
false gods fail you, you know that you have made something into an idol when it feels as if the whole world is falling apart when you lose it. Whether it is the athletic pursuits that you have, or maybe even your own business dreams. Maybe it's an academic pursuit. Maybe it's a pursuit of a relationship. You know when it becomes an idol, when you can't achieve it, and it destroys you. It drives you into depression. Why? Because it never made good on the promise you thought it was making to you. What a picture of our sin. I mean, when you put all of this together, the Nile, the Nile was a good thing. The, God, the Nile is something that God created, but the Egyptians turned it into a god. If you turn any good thing in your life into a god, that god's going to let you down. I don't care if that god is your best friend, your spouse, your children, your job, whatever it is, it's going to let you down. So you have a picture here of the Egyptians. They're angry. They're frustrated. They're despondent. They're in despair. They're digging now with their own hands to try and find something to quench their thirst because their gods have failed them. They have not come through for them. And the scene ends with these people that are frantically scurrying about Egypt, trying to find water wherever they can. Do you see the irony? What did Pharaoh do to the people when he said, I don't care what your God said, and if you've got time to go out there and worship, you know what, you can pick up your own what? And if you go back and look, it says, and so the people had to scurry throughout all of Egypt trying to find straw. And God in the first plague said, boom! And the people are scurrying through all of Egypt trying to find a little bit of water that they can drink. God has a way of turning things in our favor when we trust him, the Lord is proving a point here. What is the point? Again, Exodus 7, 17. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. I want to end with just giving you a picture of a huge chiasm. <laughs> and that is, in Exodus, you have right here God beginning the plagues with turning the water into blood. Okay? Now, I want to take you, that's way early, Exodus, second book in the Bible. Go all the way to the end, to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 16, this is what you find, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it become like the, uh, what does it say? What does the sea become like? Blood of a corpse. And every living thing did what? Died in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the what? rivers and the springs of water and they became and I heard the angel in charge of the water say just are you O holy one who is and who was for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets and you have given them blood to drink it is what they deserve and I heard the altar saying yes Lord God almighty true and just are your judgments the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it allowed it scorched the people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Even after the demonstration of God's power, they would not repent and give him glory. 
what I want to show you is this. The whole Bible starts off this way, and the whole thing ends this way. The same plague you have in the beginning is the same plague you have at the very end. The same response from the people is the same response that you have at the end. There's only one thing in the middle that's different, and that's John. Remember, John is the writer of Revelation. John is also the writer of his own gospel that bears his name, the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And then what does Jesus do? Go get some water, bring it to me. And, and I want you to know that when those servants had done everything that Jesus asked them to do, they still only had water. It took the touch of the master's hand to turn the water into wine. What you have is the beginning, this picture of judgment. And what you have at the end is this picture of judgment. But in the middle, you have this picture of what will happen if you are obedient to God. God can take water and turn it into wine. Now, here's the important thing about wine. The rabbis had this saying, where there is no wine, there is no joy. Wine was a part of every celebration. It was a part, matter of fact, remember when, when they drank the wine, they were like, oh my goodness, this is the best wine. Usually people serve the best first, and after people have had much to drink, then they bring out uh, the older wine, but you have saved the best to last. See, in between these pictures of wrath and rebellion and hardness of heart, you have this picture of God wanting to bring joy through the person of Jesus. He wants to take the situations and the crisis that you walk through and bring joy to them. All it takes is the touch of Jesus. All it takes is the obedience of the servants to say, well, I mean, they said they needed wine. They didn't say anything about needing water. And these big old pots are really heavy. And i got to drag them out to that fountain and drag them back in here. But Lord, if you say that's what I need to do, then I am listening and I'm, I'm obeying. Everything God calls you to is not necessarily going to make sense. He's looking for someone who will be obedient. He'll make sense out of the situation. He doesn't need you to make sense out of it. He just needs you and I to be obedient to him. You see this picture? What part of the revelation of God will you be on? We will all drink from the cup of the Lord. Some of us will drink to our delight and joy. Some of us will drink in our judgment and our destruction. Which will you be? Let's pray.